0: Hey everybody, welcome to Required Reading. This week we're talking about Jane Eyre. Now, we talked about this last time, kind of queued it up, but this is a book I read in high school and didn't particularly care for. Upon rereading, I enjoyed much more. So hopefully if you had a bad taste in your mouth about Jane Eyre, you'll enjoy it more this time as well. Anyway, I would like to thank you for what you do, thank you for continuing to listen, and thanks for continuing to share around the show. It means a lot to us, and we appreciate your attempts to make us as big as we've become. It really means a lot that you are listening and sharing and following the Insta and doing all those things. Thanks everyone. Welcome to Required Reading. This week we are talking about uh, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. touch just briefly, this is a theme-ish series of books where we picked the books that we had to read that we hated. Uh, This is my selection, so we're going first. It's also (laughs) the longest by far. (laughs) Uh, And so I read this in probably 11th grade, which is when we did Brit Lit here. Uh, I read it with Jim Stelges, which we'll talk about. But joining me to go through Jane Eyre, we have Mike Carroll. Mike Burns. Yeah, so this is a kind of Victorian women's novel, highlighting middle-class values and the role of women in society, and we're done. Thanks, guys, for listening.
1: (laughs) So, back up. Did you actually
0: read it? I did actually read it, and I did very poorly. Um, uh, Jim Stelges, whose class I enjoyed, he he has a very kind of charm about him and a strong Southern accent, which makes it all the better when he's reading with a Victorian English accent, uh, gives daily quizzes. And I did very poorly on several of them. Um, <laughs> he's also the one I did the Odyssey with, which will soon. I'm su- I'm assuming we're going to do the Odyssey uh, at some point. Um, but it was a struggle. Now I don't know if we did the full book or not. It was. It was. You know. It was, it was part of a reader, okay. so it might have been abridged more or less. But I remembered all the beats. So here we are um, in the mire of a 360-page Victorian. Yeah, because I'll
1: fast forward when we get to my book. I did not read it in high school. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'll own that.
0: <laughs> Spoilers alert. Um, <laughs> so what did you think of it this time around?
2: Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll kind of jump into my encountering of the text. And I know I was telling this story briefly to you guys before, uh, before the podcast started. But um, my this was my first time reading the text. Um, And as I was saying before, I think I was supposed to have read the text when I was studying abroad in undergrad at the National University of Ireland at Maynooth. Um, And I think that I misread the syllabus. um, And I thought that I was supposed to be reading Dubliners when in fact I was supposed to be reading Jane Eyre. Uh, So I walked into one of the first classes where uh, we we had a workshop that we were doing based off of some of the analytical writing that we had done based off of what I thought was going to be Dubliners, um, and lo and behold, the other eleven people that were at the table that I was workshopping with had all read and diligently done their work and writing based off of Jane Eyre. Uh, so I was I was surprised to see that uh, that I had read the wrong the wrong text at the wrong time, um, and so I think I was supposed to have read this. Bohemoth text um, when I was a junior in college, uh, but I did not read it then. So I did make my way through it this time now, and it was uh, it was a bear to get through. But uh, as I'm sure we'll get into during our conversation, there were aspects of it that. I liked, um, and Nick, I'll be interested to hear some of those things that you didn't like about it when you read through it the first time, making it the, the text that you uh, most loathed when you were in high school. Uh, but I'd I'll, I'll, I'll just be interested to, uh, to hear what it is that, that you disliked about it and why it is that it ranked so highly on that particularly um, distasteful list.
0: Sure.
1: And I never read it before this. Um, and I'll confess, I didn't read all of it this time either. <laughs> there are parts that I skimmed over and just you know passed. Um, but I felt like I read it, having read AP exams at the AP reading, this was a book that a lot of people write about and obviously a lot of people teach, so I knew all the plot points, I knew all mm-hmm. the characters in that, but just actually going from page one to page 520 in my book, um, yeah, that was a new experience. But that said, You know, even though I I skipped over it, which has more to do with busy lives than than the book itself. There's a lot about it that I like, and I could see teaching. I mean, there's a lot of different angles you can take, and we'll get into that, I think. But just the sheer density of it, I think, would be a real hard sell to a 10th or 11th grade um, audience. So kudos to teachers out there that are doing it. I'm sure people are. It's still one of the most, I just saw it this weekend on one of the 25 greatest novels ever um, in English. So, um, yeah, that was my experience. Yeah, that's
2: that, that's not altogether surprising either. And I could definitely see the, the teachability of it. Um, I mean, essentially it's a built on, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. you can, you can kind of dive into the different layers of that. Um, but there's, there's so much to teach. And again, kudos to those of you that that are out there listening, that, that have taught it or that are teaching it. Um, and I'm. We'll get into whether we think that it should be retaught here at Marist or what. I'm sure towards the end. But um, it it is long. <laughs> the, yeah. be, beware, it is long, and uh, and I can see that being a challenge to teachers. Which is as well. the first
1: strike against it in yeah. our short attention span era. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and like. You said building from out which it is but it also got whiffs of like gothic literature to Uh, it right like like because she's a consummate outsider there's death everywhere Mm -hmm. um i mean and in her own life you know she's obviously of of the brontes uh you know the family that gave us things like wuthering heights and such and all of them died before they were 32 if i recall correctly pretty Pretty
1: much pretty much yeah a lot of her family her mother her aunt (laughs) poisoned water sisters her brother right
0: Some, like, old curse. Yeah, she dies young, relatively Mm -hmm. young,
1: 38, I think.
0: But I think, like, of the three, you know, uh, Anna, Emily, and Charlotte, they all die before they're 31 or something like that. And this is, like, the beginning of Victorian literature, you know? like And so this is a time where, you know, on the other side of the the aisle, you know, Charles Dickens is starting to write, and it's not like he's terribly optimistic either. So I don't know why this sticks out. Maybe it's that um, it was one that – you know, I mean, Dickens is kind of—they're all household names. I don't—I don't know. Like, this is just Victorian literature, and uh, it's not like Dickens is necessarily brief, other than a Christmas Carol, either. Uh, so you had time on your hand to be middle class and white, and so you kept writing. Huh. <laughs> um, well, what
1: I mean, I mean uh, there's so much. I think. Um, and I didn't know this much was it, until I was researching this, but there's so much of her own life for, that has folded into this, like coming from sort of a poor family. Um, and Lowood is based on a school that she went to and her sisters both got sick and died coming out of that. Um, and then uh, Charlotte herself is described as rather plain by people who met her, not unlike Jane and sort of sort of like very different from the Buildings Room, which is usually a, a boy hero that you know comes and so i think that's part of maybe its appeal um that the character is so different in a way that, Mm -hmm. that stands out i don't know what do you guys think
0: well i mean i i think that's probably why it's the one that stands out right like there's a lot of stories like this that you could almost pick out of a blind list and then this one is everything is turned up a bit like there's a lot of love and loss and death and like you know, at one point, she, it seems like she's the only one left in a school that's alive, which is quite stark. Um, and, like, it's trying to, in some ways, not be wishy-washy, but it would be so easy to make all the ministers good or all the ministers evil. But they're not. So, so, some treat these people with respect. Some are clearly just doing it for show, right? It shows a lot of gray area, and so it makes sense that you say it relates so much to her life because I'm sure she met a lot of these people or read about them in the paper or was aware of them in some way.
2: Yeah, which in some ways makes it kind of a little bit less romantic I guess in a way. It's very... It's far from being like an idealistic text. The characters are that are created, as you're saying, Nick, are gray. There's not... A like altruistic, um, romanticized, like heroine or hero that you get in the story. And I think that that's one thing that is kind of making it a little bit more true to reality, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, which feels kind of fresh, for lack of a better word, during this time period.
1: In contrast to like Pride and Prejudice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's the, I, I would. Argue that,
1: yeah. yeah, but there are, I mean, there's set definitely romantic elements. I mean, she ends up marrying the guy oh, yeah. <laughs> and still has the fortune. It's a little less. The house is burned down. He's a little damaged because of the fire. Um, but yeah, so it still has that. And then some of the... Um, plot points come across as really contrived like she's stumbling around the marsh or the moors and then just happens to run into her cousin's house and yeah that yeah, kind of oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah
2: yeah absolutely <laughs> the 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 inheritance i think might be the, right yeah. the, the biggest of those moments this like deus ex machina right. moment where it's like oh and, 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 oh it, it's so funny too where they have the line where it's like she's like are you sure they didn't misplace right. the comma there and it's like nope <laughs> it's spelt out in letters it's like it's like really this moment where the the money is kind of like the saving element there which reduces some of the tension and conflict for the character as well of jane because the the, that the the decisions that jane's making at that point in the story are very much wrapped up in not having money and being part of this very restrictive society and being and yet again, being female in this very restrictive society. And yet it's this, this like magical bestowed from the heavens inheritance that totally comes out of nowhere that, that in some ways makes everything all right. But then at the other at in the, from kind of a storytelling perspective, it does relieve a lot of that tension that you have of the weight that goes into a lot of these choices because now she no longer has to worry financially in this very turbulent financial time period.
0: Right. It's, it's, it's almost like um, an Elizabethan play at that point too, right? It's just like, um, oh, everyone's going to die. What's gonna happen? Oh, the new king is showing up, right? Like, it's just yeah. like, the, what's gonna happen next? Oh, the plot just arrived, you're fine. <laughs> like, well, and I think that to, we
2: we've already brought up Pride and Prejudice, which just feels like such a like a partner text to this mm-hmm. and there's so much that's similar beyond the time period that it's written in, but it is written in and from teaching Pride and Prejudice, we do go into or at least I go into that the the regency time period, right, mm-hmm. where you're getting towards the end of King George the 3rd history yeah, George the third teachers okay third. so so we're we're getting towards the end of that and 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 he's very sick and so there's this um this kind of sense of unknown and this lack of security of finances and protection and uh and 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 livelihoods and the in a lot of ways during pride and prejudice that ends up coming to fruition in the the daughters needing to find somebody to marry so that they can be all set. And we talk about how that's a very interesting and important time period for this text to be taking place. And similarly, you have this the same time period where this text is being written, and yet there doesn't seem to be quite as much desperation when it comes to finances in this text, I don't think. And maybe that's because the, the $20,000 inheritance kind of relieves a lot of that otherwise would be tension Um, but it feels like jane is not as obsessed with finding a mate in order to be able to uh in order to be able to have herself be financially secure as as seems to be the case in pride and prejudice and and i'd I'd be curious to see what you guys or to hear what you guys think about that
0: absolutely like and i Maybe it's that she has so little agency throughout the whole story until the very end. Yes. That that's part oh, of you it. you think?
1: I think she has a lot of agency. Well, I mean,
0: but things are happening to her and she's reacting, you know, as opposed to— Right, but
1: she could have been Rochester's mistress. Yeah. And been set, essentially. That's right? And that's fair. And she holds her principles and doesn't, so she makes that strong choice. And
2: then with St. John right. Rivers later on, we get the, the rejection. It's almost like she has agency through her rejections. So right, her idealism. Both, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That I, I actually sense. actually have written down as one of the the like I, ideas that I kind of wanted to touch on with you guys that the ways that she exhibits her agency is not through marriage actually it seems like it's through like her own occupation of teaching adelaide is one way that she kind of like moves up in terms of in terms of not just financially but also in terms of her social class she has agency through those rejections but the last way that i think that she has agency is kind of through her individuality those are the things that allow for her to stand out in the eyes of rochester it's her art that she does that that's very individualistic it's the it's it's her name i mean torn like quite literally at the end of the story torn off of a piece of paper like her name alone that that provides her this inheritance that that grants her some more agency financially. It's through her thoughts in saying to Rochester's face that he that she doesn't find him attractive. Yeah. And that's something that Rochester is like, oh, you're an individual. I right. find this interesting. Yeah, she's and then, spunky for and, sure. And then <laughs> through nothing else but her voice at the end of the story, right? Her voice being something that makes her an individual and sets her aside from any of the other characters that we encounter in the story so all of these things that do seem to grant jane agency they're all tied up in her individuality which maybe that's maybe that's too romantic of a reading of this maybe that's too too simplistic of a reading of this in terms of the agency that jane displays but i don't know that, that that's definitely one thing that i that i wanted to talk about with you guys yeah i
1: would agree so and like unlike the Bennett's like Jane actually works. Like, yeah. they don't have to work at all. So there's some autonomy there that, to your point about money, like, she can get by if she needs, yeah. whereas the Bennets are just waiting to marry well. Yeah.
0: Well, and there's, there's something interesting to be said about middle classdom here, right? Because most of the people we deal with would probably be defined in this book as middle class, right? You know, there's a few lords and gentry, but for a lot of people who have, you know, run businesses, and but they all were born into money and then have since expanded it. She is doing, you know, the pulling herself up. She... We find out later that it turns out that she was a princess all along. But, you know, but, right. you know yeah. she, 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 you know, she works hard. She becomes a governess Whoa. and then she runs a school. And, you know, she she is using her own labor to pay her way and earning her name and building her resume. You know, there there is something kind of proto-capitalist about that.
1: Not unlike her audience, right, who's reading this. So that's probably why she's so relatable in that way. Maybe that's part of the success. Yeah. I, Everyone I, sees a little bit of themselves in her.
0: And so in saying this, you could see it as kind of a cornerstone of women's Victorian literature. Because, I mean, if you're talking Austin, you're talking about the end of the Regency period, right? But, you know, the Victorian period is, I guess, started in the 18th, late 1830s, right? Mm-hmm. But Bronte, uh, or, but Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, and Agnes Gray by, you know, all three of them, all come in the same year in 1848. Yeah. And that's kind of the cornerstone of what I think of, at least of the literature style.
1: And they all published under male names, too, which I think was interesting, yeah. Um,
0: um, and I, I don't remember. I, I think it came out right as the, right at their deaths or right around their deaths that it was actually written by women. Um, but, yeah, I mean.
1: Yeah, her, her pen name was Courier C-U-R-R-E-R, Bell. Um,
0: and then her sister was Acton Bell, I think.
1: Yeah, so it was um, an Ellis, I think, was the other one.
0: That sounds right. Um,
1: yeah, Currier, Ellis, and Acton.
0: Um, and they were all... Gone by 1848, 1849. Uh, so that <laughs> they all published the same year. Like it's it's a lot. Um, yeah, I'm I'm sure that there's that that is haunted ground. That that family home in Yorkshire. Uh, do you want to try to get through this plot? It's it's like you said. There's a lot of twists and turns in this thing. Yeah.
2: So I I can kind of take a stab at it. And I think I think one thing that allows for you to kind of be able to march your way through it is that. Um, the text very much revolves around the locations. It revolves around the estates. And so you can kind of track through though there's lots of ups and downs and lots of plot points and and so many things that end up transpiring over the course of the story there's really just kind of like when you're at these different estates that's kind of the place where jane is at that point in her bildungsroman so just kind of tracking the different estates and where jane is and around how old she is during during those points in the story, I think kind of provides some glimpse into a little bit of the plot. So you start off with Jane, who is... Orphaned and in the care of the Reeds, her parents died of typhus, and um, she is at Gateshead Hall, which is where uh, which is where Mr. and Mrs. Reed are um, are residing. Um, and uh, I can go through I can go through kind of like the, the different plot points from there. But but Gateshead Hall is kind of like the first of those locations.
0: Well, no, look, I was going to follow your lead. So there's essentially five locations. Let's just go yeah. a location at a time. So she's an orphan. She's age 10. She's living with her aunts and on Uncle. around that is when hagrid shows up and she because <laughs> she, she's told she's a wizard. Um but no I mean it, it, it is it's Harry Potter or whatever like they don't want her around they the, treat yeah, the her very step-child, cruel. Yeah child right yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know and you know she's being bullied by her, like her older cousins she defends herself and of course she's the one who's punished even yeah. though he's and being <laughs> an older it's a great prick, parallel. I didn't think of that but you're absolutely yeah, right no, yeah yeah that's really that's really
2: interesting i didn't i didn't think about the and the the otherness and the outsiderness of that uh and i've i've got a quote wait, a, after i go through the after i go through a little bit of the plot i'll i'll let you guys chat as i as i find a quote that i think does a pretty good job of kind of explaining where jane is at from uh from Gateshead hall so so that's the first location um she faints in what's called the red room as she's seeing the uh the ghost of her of her deceased uncle there's your gothic right? the which, which brings which brings Hagrid slash Mr. Lloyd the apothecary (laughs) in to kind of uh, to kind of get to the bottom of what it is that jane had seen and what it is that's going on with jane uh and it's mr lloyd that suggests that she go to the lowood school um and it's the, the and that's kind of the second location is the the lowood school where uh where jane attends so uh i, I don't know if you want to get into the lowood or if we want to shout
1: out to helen burns so a, i know i know I was, <laughs> that's my I was, mom so. is that really your <laughs> yeah. mom's name too oh yeah.
0: my goodness yeah so i mean just just to add here like. This is where you get your kind of Victorian gothic horror right like cuz it's the it's the room where her uncle died in and now the ghost is haunting it right like they're, they're just something about also call like it's literally the red room and it's it's right out of the shining i don't know right. and like you know what's a good punishment for a 10-year-old trauma <laughs> like it's th- there is you can tell this book in a in a comical way very easily, and that that's has some it been of,
1: done that way, like a exaggerated comedy, like a I don't know, that'd, that'd, like that'd you fun. should, you could a remix, yeah,
0: because it is, it's it's so absurd. Because it is, it's it's precocious kid syndrome. They're bullying each other, so I'm going to punish him by locking it in the room. And the uncle's just practically sitting there, going, "How you doing?" Like it's it's so much. So you know what she needs opium, like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's so much. Um, but then. Again, then Hagrid shows up and she goes to a school. But it's also – it's funny because it's free of charge. We don't know what the money situation really is at Gateshead. She's 10. She doesn't understand, really. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, oh, someone will pay for her to get off of our hands? Which is based on –
1: I read – there's a real school for um, clergymen or uh, the children of clergymen um, where – that's where uh, Charlotte and her sisters went. And apparently it was bad, really bad. Yeah. Yeah
0: it does seem very you know again Victorian era like oh this is a a kindly charity we do and it, and again it's all of her twist right yeah. like
1: it's very much yeah
0: it's, it's just not
2: good yeah. all um, right back to you mike so, yeah so so at the lowood institute we get uh, we're introduced to helen burns uh, who is criticized for her appearance we get the the and it's a really it's an, interesting, it's an interesting dialogue that takes place between Helen Burns, who's a friend of Jane's, um, and Jane, who seems more rebellious than Helen Burns is. Helen Burns is criticized for her appearance and rather than as so many of our students I feel like here would do being like oh that's not fair that I got in trouble Helen Burns is like nope this is right I shouldn't have looked (laughs) out of order and Jane is like no why 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 are you just like giving into this that's not how I feel about this at all so you get kind of that that clash of ideology between Helen and uh and between Jane but anyways uh Jane ends up later on during her time at Lowood ends up dropping a slate board and in like straight up Matilda style is forced to like stand up on a chair for like umpteen hours on end um and it takes Miss Temple like the the superintendent of the school coming essentially to the rescue um and it's not short it's it's not long after that that uh, that Helen ends up dying of consumption. So, uh, sorry, Mike, your your, your mom's <laughs> she's your mom's alive and kicking. Is, 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 uh, she's a saintly character. so That's good. Quickly, yes. As quickly as Helen enters the story, she then leaves. Um, and Mr. Brocklehurst, who is really described in in some vivid detail by Jane, um, is kind of like found out for the 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 terrible school essentially that it is that. Uh, that he's running and kind of gets things shut down. And right. so those are the first two locations. And that brings us through maybe the first 100, 150 pages, maybe, thereabouts.
0: This book is a going on Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: um, just a fun fact. Let me interject. So when Charlotte and her sisters leave uh, the school they were actually in, biographical true, they go home and they essentially just run wild. Right. Like the father is kind of an absentee father, but they're writing stories, putting on plays. There's the movie that needs to be made, like yeah. like the Little Women version of the Bronte sisters yeah. and, and all the stories. there. And apparently some of the little books are, still exist. Have you guys seen them? Whoa, no. Yeah, like they would hand make these little books and sew them together and tell these stories and have these plays. So just like a rich dive into like childhood imagination. And, yeah. that's, oh, yeah, for and sure. so that's sort of just an interesting story.
0: Much more interesting than Little Women. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, I will also add just what well, we're here. since you mentioned it earlier. Um, Elizabeth Gaskell, uh, a friend of the show, uh, wrote the biography of the Brontes. Right. And she said Helen Burns was based on, quote, an exact transcript of Maria Bronte, the youngest sister who died at 11. Mm. Um, I will also say, if you're looking for this to be comedy, which you should, because it's, otherwise it's very long. But Helen Burt Burns is essentially introduced... And then coughs subtly. Right. Right? Like, <laughs> Very right? Dickens-like. Like, yes. at the end of every scene they have together, she's coughing into a napkin, yeah, and you're yeah. just like, well, oh, she's gonna die. Like, yeah. again, <laughs> it's just, too good is for it,
1: this earth. Yes.
0: There's nothing more like more contrived in, in the script than cough into handkerchief blood. Right. Like, um, I will also say that Brocklehurst has a great line where he's talking about how the women look right and and again it's it's like superintendent Chalmers going year after year of ugly ugly children <laughs> as though they have control yeah. and that's the problem <laughs> um, but you know Brocklehurst is the clergyman of the Lockwood, of the Lowood school and he's trying to this is, you know, the, the hypocrisy of the, the court. Like, he wants to do this by looking good, and he's like, these, w- these women will learn how to be good by being austere. Something about poverty and sinfulness going on. Meanwhile, her his wife is, like, ornate, dressed in the fanciest of clothing. Um, and then there is pushback by people who actually want to take care of these kids. But to your
1: point, the, the fact that they're described as plain or ugly— is like that anti romantic idea. Yeah. So it's not just her beauty and charm that make her successful or marry well in the end. So it's, it's sort of going against type, I guess.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, and then the one who is the kind one is Maria Temple, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Who is, again, she is, um, and there's kind of an irony here, I guess, in, in how the Bronte's write it, but she's the kind hearted one. She wants to take care of the kids. She stands up for them. You know, she'll take the punishment in order to allow the kids to thrive. But her out is to be married off and to stop teaching, mm-hmm. right? And that's – it's it's kind of the tragedy of the whole thing because she rever- marries another reverend, Reverend Naismith, mm-hmm. and leaves. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the school kind of falls apart. Interest- right.
2: Interesting, yeah. I think, that, the, that one of the most Christian characters that we get in the story in terms of service, her – name is temple right so there's kind of a i think that there there might be some sort of commentary going on there but that's just kind of a, a passing comment
1: sure and they start at low wood yeah. Right? Right. Yeah. yeah all right mike what's next all right
2: so so we go from low to thornfield hall um and in order to do so jane needs to take the initiative to put her name in the papers and and uh and look for a job, um, something that I feel like our students today would have no idea how to even go about trying to do. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, she puts her name in the papers for uh, a job listing as a, a tutor, a governess. I was a little bit confused about the role specifically, but it ends up being taken up by uh, by the Rochester family, by by Mr. Rochester, Mr. Edward B- Rochester, um, and it's for it's for Adelaide, who is a um, yet an, another character that is that is an orphaned ish character, um, and another kind of like quote other character. Um, so interesting that that there do seem to be at least in terms of origin some similarities there between Adelaide and
1: Adelaide Adelaide's uh, and like Jane. a bastard child, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um and just not, not to go back, but. At the Lowood School, this is essentially kind of what she's being trained to do. She's being taught. It's yep. more of a seminary than it is like a classical education. She's learned a little bit of history and literature, but she's taught how to play piano. And she's specifically taught French, which mm. becomes important. Right. Uh, and then when, he, you know, the grim hand of death kills everyone at Lowood uh, Institute mm. and she, she decides, like, to leave like she she'd been there for six years as a student two years as a teacher and now she wants to go out into a world as a governess and it's essentially the french part that gets her the job because adele or adelaide like doesn't speak english she's mm-hmm. she french um and so she kind of goes back and forth between french and english and the fact that um jane is fluent is what is significant here
2: yeah yeah so you So so now we're we're at Thornfield, which is uh, the estate of Rochester, but we haven't met Rochester yet. And this is in it. This one's kind of laughable in the the approach of Rochester to his own estate, and Jane is out walking and sees rochester fall off of his horse and goes over to help and little does she know that he is the head of the estate in which she to is the meet, <laughs> meet cute exactly yes thank you mike um and it's a, uh, it's it's this kind of very, talk about kind of like a romanticized moment. My goodness, um, but it's this moment where Jane kind of like helps out the fallen writer and uh, and goes back only to only to learn later on that it is indeed Rochester who is the uh, the head of the household.
1: And it, it it's been a while since I read because probably in December when I read this part. But isn't um, the estate kind of gothic in the way it's described? But does she hear, like arrive at midnight, and then there's like laughter upstairs, which we learned. Am I remembering that no, right? No, no, it is. Yeah. It's
0: very haunted mansion, right? And, like, yeah. She's she's welcomed in by this one person who she doesn't know, and it's a dark room with just a fire burning. And then later on, that's how she meets Rochester, because when he comes in, he's also in like this giant room with a fireplace burning, and the dog is there. Okay. And she recognizes the dog first.
2: Yeah, and I think I think it's during that exchange when Rochester is trying to figure out who this person is that's that's helping him up after. After having fallen off of this horse and he he describes like which estate is it that you're working at is it the one over there with like the battlements and the, it's, it's right, definitely okay. described. Right. In, yeah i was trying to find it in, in that's kind what of like i remember a description okay yeah. um so anyway so it, it is found out that that uh that this is indeed rochester and, and thus starts these these i would go so far as to call them kind of endearing uh, conversations between Rochester and Jane, um, in in kind of a strange sense. The the I think I spoke about it already. The the line where. Where Rochester asks Jane if she finds him attractive, and he and, and she says no, um, and it's that that response and that wit and that kind of sass that that Rochester thinks to himself, well, this is this is an individual that we have in our hands here. Um, but nevertheless, we do have kind of the the starting of some romance between uh, between Jane and Rochester over the course of those uh, over the course of those scenes, um, and then the next. Then we we do have Mrs. Reed who kind of dies during this during this time period, and we get oh actually I think that's sorry hold the phone on Mrs. Reed's death <laughs> she takes a little bit longer to die uh, but we do get the uh, the the growing romance. We get the the proposal of uh, of Rochester to Jane, um, and then I have written down Bertha's wedding revenge. Uh, there are there are a number of moments over the course of the time at Thornfield where there are some like supernatural moments that a are gypsy, going on. Right? Yeah, we get the we get kind of like the the talk of ghosts and voices and fires, which is which is a kind of a, a foreshadowing, foreshadowing for the for the fire that's to come later. But on the night when Jane is supposed to be on her wedding night, when Jane is supposed to be getting married to Rochester that very next day, Bertha comes and rips the wedding veil that uh, that Jane would be wearing that next day. And if that's not enough, while they're in the midst of beginning the wedding ceremony, we have the, it is found out that, that Rochester cannot marry because he is still in wedlock with uh, with Bertha, who is, who has, uh, I, I don't know the medical diagnosis or, or, or I'm not going to begin to, to attempt to kind of make sense of, of the character of Bertha. I love the fact that Bertha is in this story and th- the fact that I get to write something down like Bertha's Wedding Revenge in my notebook <laughs> is just great to me. I think uh,
0: they call it congenital madness.
2: Yes, congenital madness. <laughs> that's that's great. Very that's a, that, that's a great term for it. So, uh, so, But she's been staying at the estate, essentially kind of like locked up, kind of of messed up. Mad woman
1: in the attic, literally. So
2: and and (laughs) and it's it is indeed Bertha who's been who's that who is the source of these voices and who's the source of a lot of these kind of supernatural elements. Um, And it's at the end of this kind of exchange when Rochester offers to Jane, well, you can come and live with me in the south of France. We'll just run away. And Jane rejects that. And I think that that does show a little bit of her agency. But anyways, thus ends the
0: first chapter of the Thornfield Hall saga. If you asked me how long after this the book ended, before Ah. we got, this is where I would have been like, oh, we're almost done. But we're like halfway through the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, I mean, to just touch on what goes on here, this might be literature's first example of catfishing. Because (laughs) Rochester is like, oh, you play... uh, Adequate piano. Like, because yeah. he's like, go play some piano for me. And she plays something, who knows what. And he's like, eh, okay, you're what I would expect from an English governess. And she's just like, what does any of this mean? And it goes on like this. Your French appears to be decent. Like, it's, um, and of course, Adele's just happy to have someone to talk to. <laughs> <laughs>
2: He, he, he does seem legitimately impressed by, the, by her artwork, and that correct. artwork is something that kind of carries through from the start of the story all the way up through the end. And I don't know, maybe there's something about beauty there, maybe there's something about, uh, about the portrayal of beauty and appearances that, uh, that seems very much in contrast with uh, with itself. Over the course of the story, and I can talk more about that later on. But that, but I think that there's something about the the fact that Jane's art is something that endears Rochester to her,
1: and also and, like Bertha is Creole, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's the otherness there, and you could read it like with today's lens is like projecting racism on yeah. the crazy woman who's you know, crawling around on all fours at one point, and that sort of stuff. So,
0: and I guess if you wanted to add the historical element, you could talk about. The lingering Germanness in the English court, of of someone named Bertha hiding in the attic when you know what Victoria was married to her German cousin, uh, and all of course all the, the Georges at the end and William the were all Germans as well. Um, but yeah, I mean I, this this part is where it gets truly bizarre. You know, she's falling in love with an ugly man who locked his previous wife in the attic. Is, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and we do get these kind of creepy elements, like Jane see, thinks she sees someone at the foot of her bed. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you said, there's an allusion to the fire, because um, uh, there's a fire in uh, Rochester's room mm-hmm. that she douses with fire uh, with water. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and even like. I mean, again, I'm not good with the English literature stuff, but like he's kind of a Byron figure, right? He's oh, very rugged. Much. Yeah. You know, he's got this roguishness. Very path. sensual.
1: Yeah. He wants to like defy institutions and yeah. just run away and marry. Yeah.
0: Um, he has a potentially a illegitimate child with a French dancer. Again, very Byron. And the fact that he's haunted by a ghost seems even more Byron somehow. Um, and so, you know, you have this mysterious character who wants you to impress him before he even kind of talks to you. It's, it's an interesting kind of thing going on. You could spend the whole time almost at Thornfield Hall.
1: But it, backing up to like the teachable moments, um, like when he proposes this like in crazy storm, right? You know, it's a pathetic yeah. fallacy, oh, yeah, and then the sure. fire foreshadowing that. So there's a lot of like the literary elements I could see as a teacher teasing out and like, there's a reason this is here and, yeah. and foreshadowing that. They're
2: just separated by like 150 pages <laughs> <things> from one <laughs> another. <laughs>
1: Yes. True. Very true. Yeah. All right, Mike. Keep going. Anyways, yeah.
2: So, so that that kind of ends the first Thornfield Hall saga, and then we make our way to Morehouse, and the the Morehouse is like she, Jane ends up like on the doorstep sickly like on her on her deathbed and needs like like turned away from the housekeeper it's almost kind of like a like a virgin mary story where she's turned away by the housekeeper and needs to be rescued by saint john rivers and Sinjin,
1: so, i believe is how they pronounce Sinjin, it yeah. yes
2: so singin rivers yes. i guess is that the Sinjin, as we'll learn well, i listened there. to some
1: audiobook and then it reminds me of like there's one of the james bond movies where he, 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 he presents um Sinjin whatever and so Sinjin, yeah okay. moonraker i think is it okay yeah
0: so
2: Sinjin so Rivers um, is kind of like comes to the rescue, and it's through this. Uh, it, it's also at this time, I guess. Uh, what are the character names? I think it's Diana it? and Mary? Mary. Mary and Diana. Yeah, right. that are uh, that are also at this. That are also at this estate, and. Uh, Jane uses an alibi. Is it Jane Elliot? It is. Yeah, yeah. making, okay, so so Jane Elliot is the is the alibi that she ends up using, um, and it is during this point that, very kind of like strangely, Sinjin ends up tearing a piece of. I, I was a little bit confused by that. Maybe you guys can can shed some light uh, on on that moment. But it's it's through some writing on Jane's paper that Sinjin is able to realize that. The that she is indeed the the inheritor of this enormous twenty thousand pound inheritance, um, and then he approaches her and asks her about it, and that that's that scene that I was alluding to before when she says, "Are you sure there's not a comma mistake there?" And no, indeed, it is a, a twenty thousand uh, pound inheritance that she that she takes on. Um, but Sinjin ends up proposing to. Uh, to Jane and Jane ends up rejecting that proposal. That proposal does carry with it an opportunity to travel and be a minister-esque with Sinjin. Um, and Jane's response is that essentially I'll travel with you as a sister, um, but I don't, but, but I won't be marrying you. And so we get a little bit more of that agency from Jane there Yeah. and then we're close. We're four fifths of the way through And <laughs> Well, we're, we're four fifths of the estates through
0: at that point. Yeah, the last bit is is strange. Um, but yeah, so this part is the most bizarre. She essentially leaves her book and stumbles into a different story altogether. Yeah. Uh, she's also terrible at keeping up her disguise because they figure out her name is actually Jane Eyre because she writes it. Da- like, she she forgets the alias she gives, essentially. Yeah. And that's okay. what's happening. Um, but... They're, you know, she gets along with Diana and Mary very well. John, or Sinjin is, I don't know, he's more distant. Then they're all siblings. I don't know if we mentioned yeah. this, but they all live Cousins, together. Cousins, right, yeah. Yeah,
1: or, yeah Jane. No, Jane. He,
0: the three of them are siblings. And right. Jane turns out to be their cousin. Right, that's what we which, find out later. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Of course, of course. Um, but as the story comes together, uh, Jane essentially gets a job teaching nearby to this mm-hmm. village school of kids who, she loves the kids b- but these are country kids they're not the the, the stock she's used to teaching Yeah. Um, and then when Diana and Mary leave they essentially become governesses and being the only other person in the house now her and Jin are getting along it's very strange yeah. um, but essentially they start falling in love and then they turn out their cousin which is fine <laughs> It, it's it's
2: 1848. Yeah, and the the well, oh, actually, we we miss Mrs. Reed's death. She di- she died somewhere in there. Mrs. Reed is yes. and Jane like comes like goes back to I think she ends up going back to Gateshead and um kind of like telling everybody off um and Mrs. Reed it's it's I guess said that she was she like keeping some sort of inheritance from Jane? I don't know, the, the, that part was confusing, but I know that <laughs>
0: Mrs. Reed dies in there, uh, and, we, and we had kind of like glossed well, over or skipped over that. Essentially what happened was, John was alive. Okay, And yep. John was reaching out to say, I would like to meet my niece, mm. and that's what Mrs. Reed was hiding. Gotcha, okay. Right, and um, and so John, in like the last few years of his life, is convinced that Jane has died, mm-hmm. Um, but then he eventually dies and leaves the fortune to her, which gotcha. Reed talks about on her deathbed. And Jane is like trying to forgive her, but she refuses to forgive herself, which is it again, it's almost a funny scene. it could go but it goes on like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what's going on there, which is letting an old woman by her deathbed know she's a terrible person is, is always—it's <laughs> very satisfying.
1: She was pretty terrible. Yeah. she was. She yeah. was
0: absolutely terrible. There's <laughs> no need to justify anything. It's just—it's very funny. Like, yep, you were awful. Bye. It's—it's uh, it's nice little retribution. Um, but yeah. So so then- which
1: which was very sort of transgressive in its time, right? I mean, of course. there's some reviews that were shocked by sort of um, Jane's behavior, like. Sneering at institutions, or steering yeah. at Christianity or forgiveness, yeah, or something it was considered like that. Anti-Christian in a lot of ways right. at first.
0: Um, I mean, it's the whole problem in general. I mean, we we have talked about before and other things, but the separation between religion and the church, right? Like, right. The, like the ministers are corrupt. The message is not. And so when people are acting Christian, like we talked about at the beginning, the most Christian character at this Christian school is not the minister in charge, it's the teachers at the school.
1: Right, and similarly, the institution of marriage and love are very separate with, with Sinjin yeah. himself. Like, mm-hmm. he's a good enough guy, but there's no love there, so, right?
0: Yeah, Yeah. and that's kind of what the, the book is kind of addressing, the difference between the expectation and the ideal versus the reality, um, which, you know, it, it, it does to varying degrees and kind of has fun with throughout. Um, and they, they could have some, uh, you know, more goings-on in this or make it 20% shorter. But, you know, the, the point is what they're doing is fine. Um, I also like, again, the place where she is going to get her independence and her wealth. If, you, if we're going to look from Lowood, uh, there's nothing lower in a Christian society than a Moor who would be a, a mm. Spanish Muslim, right? And so we have this idea of the Moor house. is mm. It's a play on words, right? It's a house where there's more, but also spelled like that, a Moor would be a Spanish Muslim, Um, Hmm. and so where, and where is he going, but he's going to convert the heathens, right? I think he's going to India, which would not be Muslims. Or
1: you get really into the Amor as in love. Of course.
0: uh. (laughs) Oh, they had so much fun. (laughs) Look at (laughs) them.
1: It's almost uh, as if I've been waiting for that moment.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, well, let's let's return to Thornfield one last time. So we get the <laughs> we get the and this is this is the most like superficial or not superficial. I'm sorry. The the most contrived. Superna- <laughs> well, no, i, I, I more meant kind of like supernatural. Well, definitely contrived. Uh, but so contrived. But uh, but kind of like a, I don't know, kind of like a magical realism type of a moment when, uh, in the middle of the night after after packing her bags to go and travel with Sinjin, uh, she hears the voice of Rochester calling out her name. And so <laughs> Rochester, we, we, we find out, and, and Jane says, like, I'm coming! And we, we get this very, talk about a romanticized moment, my goodness. She's kind of, like, r- rides off to, to see Rochester, and sees the and I'd, I'd be interesting I'd be interested to go back through I was kind of rushing through because in, in preparation for the podcast at the end of the story in I'd be interested to go back and take a closer look at the descriptions that you get the first description of uh, of Thornfield from when Jane is talking with Rochester aside the toppled Rochester who's fallen off of his horse and the almost kind of romantic description of the battlements there. And then the ruined Thornfield, it's been burnt down to the ground. It is in ruins. um, And, there and rochester indeed was calling out jane's name um and it turns out that it was the what was it bertha was that the the yeah, bertha, bertha yeah. who ended up setting fire and and throwing herself from the battlements how and, convenient and, right? yeah. Dude, <laughs> this is
0: like the most metal end to a character she lights the house on fire kills everyone inside and then jumps from the roof like yeah, it's incredible it is it is quite and yeah, it is.
2: It, it's really, it's really something at the at the end of the story. But anyways, the Thornfield is in ruins, uh, and it's at this time that that Jane encounters Rochester, who has lost a hand and who is has lost his vision. Um, and Rochester has the line where he says like, "But aren't I hideous?" And Jane's like, "Yeah, but you've always been hideous." <laughs> it's, it's like really a comical line. Uh, but but anyways, the 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 appearance there and the inability for Rochester to be able to see Jane and the descriptions that you get of Rochester, who now his appearance has been altered by this fire. Um, that it seems as though he is at as low as it can be and what's there to save them but the 20,000 pound inheritance, right? So you get the kind of the the salvation that ends up coming from, from Jane, who is... At this point, financially can be independent.
1: Doesn't need Um, him. Yeah,
2: exactly. But it's but still that is the the man that she loves, and so they marry one another. And then magically, his vision does end up returning, right? uh, Some years later, so that he can look upon their newborn son. That's right. and of course, in the in the denouement, in the, in the end, you get kind of the, the fact that, oh, Adelaide or Adele is doing well, and Mary and Diane, they still keep up, and and uh, Sinjin, well, he's getting sick on his travels, and you kind of get the, it, very similar to the end of Pride and Prejudice, you get kind of the wrap-up of, of where characters are and how it is that they're doing now, and oh yeah, by the way, Rochester got his vision back, and, and they lived happily ever All after.
1: Right. Hey, we were joking before, but yeah, the first line of chapter 28, the last chapter is... His reader, I married him.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Could have skipped a lot in the middle there and yeah. just jumped to that.
0: Well, but also, like, so she, like, when she leaves Thornfield, she rushes off in the middle of the night, doesn't want to wake anyone, sneaks out, winds up, like, on someone's stoop. Does Rochester never look for her? Because she's gone for, what, years? Like, we, we lose track of time here, but she runs back in a single night. It's not like – in. in Possibly hours. She's like two houses down, and no one looks for her. She's Training for
1: cross country all along,
0: yeah. <laughs> right. It's just it's it's just very bizarre.
1: But the point too, I want to make, like, for all she knows, he's still married at that point. So I, you know, right? What I'm saying, like, she runs to be with him when she was supposed to go off to India. Right. But he's still a married man, as far as she knows, right? She's, she's just doesn't checking know about... it on a
2: neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> she, does, she doesn't know about about Bertha or the
0: fire or any of that at that moment. Yeah, she's I, I don't know maybe. On the horizon, there's fire and then there's just like a Looney Tunes hole where Bertha went down, and then she's like, oh, <laughs> like a silhouette shadow hole. That's right. Of poor Bertha. Acme, right? Ac- That's right. Ac- it's it's just Acme the
1: fire kit. The last two
0: chapters are like Wuthering Heights is about to come out. Do you have an ending for your book yet? Uh, I got something <laughs> it's like you burn down the entire second act and then what's left is and they lived happily ever after yeah. it's, it's the ending it's ridiculous, of this is but still
1: satisfying in its own way right because oh, yeah. you're rooting for all along so yes, yeah you are yeah but it um, could be done to a comic extreme, for sure.
0: I, I also want to emphasize that everyone's backup job apparently is working in a needle factory, which I had no idea. <laughs> I, I don't it's know a good how, stock job. Yeah. I don't know how many times that comes up, but if you're not a governor, so you're working.
1: I in haven't a signed needle my fa- contract yet, so maybe I should look <laughs> into that.
0: But I mean, it's it's really just like, well, she ended up working for a needle factory, and they got a job right. in a needle factory, and he married she married a minister, but the sister worked in a needle factory. I'm Just wow we needed a lot of needles back then um but yeah you know it's it's all the stuff but bertha just ending it all at the end like it's because it, you could also go full gothic and it's like a Stephen King story, like the evil twin locked upstairs. Totally. It's, it's it's. And then Grace Poole, who's supposed to be watching, it gets too drunk. And so the occasionally she can escape. It's there's something so, you know, Victorian haunted mansion about it. Like, yeah. It's, I imagine it's you cool. can do
1: a lot with like a Freudian reading of it, too. And so others and you know, subconscious and Bertha, what she represents and um, Jungian symbolism and all that.
0: I mean, and I mean, you would talk about Jung. It's the collective unconscious. That's right. how he reaches her at the end, right? And what's uh, that
1: famous quote she has about the bird? Um, you know the one I'm talking about. No. I am no bird, and no net ensnares me. I'm a free human being with an independent will. There you go. Just the idea of of her, you know, autonomy, her um, her agency.
2: Okay, so I got I got a kind of I'll, I'll pick up that baton, mic from you because I've got a, a thought that I've been thinking of as as we've been making our way through this conversation, which is we talked at the start of this about how this story is a Bildungsroman and how you get kind of that moral growth from the start as the story progresses and you get that kind of, I would argue that individuality that kind of develops for Jane as she progresses through the story. But at the same time, I wonder the extent to which this character has always been rebellious or if this character kind of grew into that rebelliousness of that of that kind of world in which she's living and i've got a quote this is from really early on it's in the conversation between the apothecary mr lloyd and jane this is when she's still 10 years old and living at uh at gateshead hall so this this is really early on it's actually on page 33 of a like nearly 600 page book and this is this is what it is that it says so i'll just i'll just read through this quote and then i'd like to get your your opinions guys on on what it is that you think is is going on here. So this is Mr. Lloyd asking her if she were to have any other family relations, even if they were to be poor, whether she would want to live with them. And so the line goes, if you had such, would you like to go to them? I reflected. Poverty looks grim to grown people, still more so to children. They have not much idea of industrious, working, respectable poverty. They think of the word only as connected with ragged clothes, scanty food, fireless grates, rude manners, and debasing vices. Poverty for me was synonymous with degradation. No, I should not like to be I would I should not like to belong to poor people was my reply not even if they were kind to you I shook my head I could not see how poor people had the means of being kind and then to learn to speak like them to adopt their manners to be uneducated my goodness to grow up like one of the poor women I saw sometimes nursing their children or washing their clothes at the cottage doors of the village of Gateshead no, I was not heroic enough to purchase liberty at the price of caste.
1: <laughs> Holy
2: cow! So, so ten it years mean, old. It seems. It seems to me, right? <laughs> how how bought into yeah. this society is she? And so, would you then argue that this bildungsroman that the character of Jane goes through? Would you Would you argue? As I'm thinking, I'm starting to believe myself, that it's this Bildungsroman that she goes through is a rejection of that society that she's living in. And that's the growth that she needed to learn, just how messed up this society is and just how how dangerous, I guess you could say, this caste system is that she's living in. So so after hearing that quote, do you think that that changes any dynamics of the Bildungsroman that Jane goes on?
0: I mean that line stuck out to me too. The I would hate to grow up being like with poor people. It was It's, yeah. it's, it's very stark. Um, yeah, I don't know.
1: So say what? What are you saying? Is the shift then, Mike? Like, how does that change how you would read the arc of the novel or her character?
2: Well, the I it seems like by and I the the other kind of moment where you start to see her starting to grow into it is when she's talking with Helen. Burns and you get this moment where Helen is saying that like no I need to be good I need to conform to their society I need to conform to these appearances and even at that moment so early on in the story this is at Lowood this is before she gets to Thornfield this is before she meets Rochester it seems like at that moment she's already willing to say no that's not how I think about things Helen I think about things a little bit differently like be gone that, that be gone their thoughts about appearances and so on and so forth so maybe maybe I guess what it, what it does is to me is to show how quickly and how soon that shift takes place and then rather than being a story about a character that needs to learn to be rebellious it almost seems like by the time you're one-fifth or one-sixth of the way through the story she's already rebellious and now you get a story of this rebellious character within this system and for me, it makes it less about that Bildungsroman if by page and the, the 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 next quote that I would be bringing up is on page 86. Again, we're talking about a 600 page novel here. But by page 86, she's already this rebellious character in her conversation with Helen about how she's not going to conform to society. And so it becomes, in, in my opinion, maybe less of a Bildungsroman. It's less of this moral development into an understanding of needing to be rebellious against this societal structure. Mm-hmm. And it's more that look at Lowood when she's talking with Helen in the few pages that we get Helen before she dies, she's already become this rebellious character. And now we get to witness the, the, the character of Jane in all of her rebellious glory fighting against this system for the, <laughs> The next like 520
1: pages. No, I, I I definitely agree with that sort of the rebel thread. That's yeah, I, I'd say so, that's makes more of a clear reading of the arc of her yeah. character
0: so you can kind of look at this as a satire of victorian culture yeah right because there are these expectations put before her and she a rejection first... yeah, yeah, yeah i was, she...
2: was going to say either rejection or kind of commentary or because that first one sort so of that.
1: like very like good christian poor people like you know the mm-hmm. meek shall inherit the earth and she's yeah. like screw that right? yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly i don't want to be with poor people yeah, yeah. right
0: yeah I, I can see that you know yeah. there, there's swiftian moments of this yeah um but yeah no i i i i, I enjoy that part of it because she is i mean and i don't have a good geography for the part of england she's in but it doesn't seem like she goes very far but the world is completely different from place to place even though they're within a day's ride of each other right you know it's it's it's, shouting distance if nothing else right right. (laughs) clearly (laughs) (laughs) uh we could kind of put this together let's put a bow on it mike what do you think
1: like i said it's it's there's very teachable and there's a lot there's a lot of meat to it. Yeah. I just don't think it would suit the short attention of students today. So like you'd have to be really enthusiastic about it and walk them through and like this be your thing and I'm sure teachers out there do it and do it well. Um, but I think it would be hard. It's a hard sell. But that said, there's a lot to it and there's a lot of fun things you could do with it.
2: Yeah, I think it would be it would be difficult timing wise Mm -hmm. I mean especially here when we're on trimesters over the course of one term to be able to cover all you could uh, do it it would need to be the only text that you covered you would need to be really all on board with teaching Jane Eyre and it would need to be the only thing that you that you taught over the course of the entire term Um, and even with that I still agree Mike I think that it would be difficult to um, keep the students engaged with this long
0: of a text. I every bit of it has interesting parts. That's the problem, right? Like I couldn't just say, well, read the Thornfield stuff. No, you, you kinda gotta read it all. Mm-hmm. If there was a nice tight abridged version, now that it's as old as it is, I'm shocked there isn't like a graphic novel version. But right. like part of it is this is a hell of a character like just just the man yeah i mean victorian literature as we've started to talk about what's what it's driven by is character development she is an interesting character she's yeah. snarky at times sarcastic she's a rebel
1: mike was just talking yeah. about yeah, yeah i
0: mean and, and it is such a buttoned up society and i have nothing against the austin books but those characters are so much more boring to me, mm. just just in general. And I, I've read Little Women recently. It's hard to sink your teeth into the oh dearest sister. How much fun with this? No, she's she's a jerk sometimes, and it's fun. She's a she's a person. Um, but then, as far as teaching this goes, it's it's long, it's dry. I don't know how we got through it. I would guess we read an edited down version because it is. It's it's very long. Um, But I remembered all the parts. That's why I'm thinking abridged rather than
1: snipped. Did you have an anthology then that you read from or what? Do you remember? I I honestly
0: don't. I'll I'll see if I can find what I had because I didn't.
1: More than 20 years ago, right?
0: Well, and it was probably something like if it was part of one of those giant anthologies, it probably looked like it was 300 pages, but it was not the whole thing. Yeah, you
1: used to have like the Norton. Did you guys have the Norton? We had a Norton.
0: But he also occasionally gave us handouts of things by the chapter. So I I couldn't tell you.
1: Jim Uh, just if you're out there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> Let us know. Um, but uh, I think we've done this book. Whenever I sit down like this and I have no idea what what it's going to be like, we'd usually knock it out pretty good. I feel like we did this one justice. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. So right. I got to say, we, we we're just finishing Gatsby, and so we just watched the Boz Lerman version of it. Yeah. I want to see the Boz Lerman of this.
2: Yeah, like, he, I'd be interested
1: he, in that. He, he, his adaptations, whether it's Romeo and Juliet or. Um, Gatsby are always pretty clever. I think it would be interesting to see what someone like him could do with this story. To your point, Nick, of like making it abridged and palatable. To, well, there's
0: yeah. not a lot of party scenes. Baz Luhrmann no, might have a hard time. No, but it's, it's <laughs> gothic, right?
1: Um, I mean, you I could do the horror and uh, I don't know. Yeah. After,
0: after so many people watched Downton Abbey and stuff like that, like Comedy Central had a show called Another Period, which was a, like kind of a parody on that. You could do a funny version. Someone needs to be able to tell this story in a compelling way because I've seen a lot of the Austin and, and Bronte adaptations, and they put on that either East Atlantic or English accent, and it's very soft and very mild. Have fun with this it. Yeah,
1: pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Come on, let's yeah. get
0: A woman lights a house on fire and jumps from a roof. <laughs> like, I don't, like It's such a metal ending to a, a strange section of the book that you could have fun with it. I, I don't know what, what else to say. Like, it's it's... If you haven't read this as an adult, I understand it's intimidating because it's over 150 years old and it is, you know, Victorian and it's long, but it's got some interesting stuff to say. So, I'll throw that out there. Yeah. Um, But we're out of time. We've done it. We've talked about Jane Eyre. Uh, Mr. Burns, what book are you making us read that you didn't like?
1: Uh, And as I said, I didn't read, so this will be new to me. Uh, Billy Budd. By Herman Melville.
0: Is there about a bunch about scrimshaw in that? Or I know I, I, knew I started it? at one
1: point, and then I never <laughs> f- never finished it, which um, was unusual for me. As,
0: yeah. that, that's why we're here. Confession, here. Oh, I feel better, right? right? <laughs>
1: this is I'm going to say Ten decision. Hail Marys. Right? Yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in front of all of our, <laughs> <laughs> our listeners, right? Yeah.
0: That's right. That's why we're doing it. And Mr. Carroll, what are yours? So
2: when I was in high school, I did indeed read uh, Albert Camus' The Plague. Um, and I did not take to it. So I'm I I'm open to it, uh, especially in light of the play, uh, the play again, in light of covid and everything that it's done to society. And I'm, I'm interested to see how there might be some parallels with that. So, um, yeah, I'm. I, I really hated it when I was when I was in high school. In fact, it was the very first one that came to mind when Nick, when you brought up this idea of the texts that we hated when we were in high school. Oh, sure. uh, so this is this is definitely that one one of the first ones that come to mind. But if nothing else, I'll be interested to kind of see the text in a new light after something that the entire world went through with COVID. So. Well,
0: and I will say for both of you, um, M- Moby Dick might be the book I tried to read the most and put down. Mm -hmm. And I think in high school we read Bartleby the Scrivener, but I have Mm -hmm. not
1: read... It's a short story, yeah. Well,
0: right, but I don't think I've read anything by Melville that's book-length at all. Mm -hmm. And then for you, um, Camus the Stranger was a book that I didn't really get into, but when we talked about, I was like the philosophy I got. Like I don't yeah. agree with, but like that's a good one to discuss. And I picked up the plague, but read it myself and never talked to anyone about it. Yeah. So it's one that like I got this feeling about, but to talk with someone, I think will make a huge impact. Yeah. Um, so that's. So I'm, I'm open to it. I'm open to having my mind
2: chime I'm I'm and maybe 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 this is a little bit too optimistic of me to be thinking this way after this podcast. But uh, Nick, I was I, going into reading this. You being somebody who whose opinion I value when it comes to, to literature. I was kind of dreading it a little bit, never having read it before. Again, I was supposed to when I was in Ireland, but sorry <laughs> to, to whomever that professor we was absolve that, you. for whom I didn't <laughs> Yes, the confessional <laughs> continues. Um, but but I was I was kinda dreading it, but I'm I'm hoping, Nick, that, that after our conversation you might have seen that text in a little bit of a new light and I'm looking oh. forward to maybe seeing the plague in a new light.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I, I I enjoy this much more, so it worked. Yeah, J- just like Death Comes for the Archbishop. We didn't <laughs> we didn't have high expectations going in, but we did in the long run. Um, so thanks for doing all you do, uh, Michael on Instagram. Yep, that's right. Um, and we'll we'll work on being more social with our social media here. Uh, but we're, wi- we're winding up the season because. Um, this is the end of March as you're listening to this, and we just told you what's going on in April. Mm-hmm. So we're screaming towards the end of the school year. If there's anything you want us to try to get on the list um, before the end of the year or for next season, please email us, reach out, reach out on the Insta, however you want to do it. Uh, and, of course, I'm uh, required on Twitter, uh, required a pod on Twitter. Uh, but thanks for all you do. Thanks for reviewing. Thanks for sharing. And see you next time. Bye, everyone. See ya. Card Reading is a product of Maris Podcasting and Duke Letter Podcasting. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and co-hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is Sands by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests, but not of Maris' school. All rights reserved. Thanks!